The South has its beauty with dripping Spanish moss, massive oaks, thick woods, and vibrant green vegetation. Along with the remnants of abandoned mansions and decaying buildings, forgotten and buried in a time long ago, the South has more than a few skeletons in its closet. And its secrets keep crawling out of the grave, refusing to stay buried. After a recent trip to Atlanta and its hauntingly beautiful historic Oakland Cemetery, I picked up a few books that uncover some of the Gate City's dark past. This is the horrifically true story of the Atlanta River. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. The streets are never safe, never have been in all my years, but lately there's a monster roaming, stealing life from the young and beautiful. I never fancied myself attractive, but Mr. Linton told me on more than one occasion that a sweet temperament like mine, along with my fine cooking, will make my future husband a mighty proud man. I like to believe so. Walk safe, Miss Linton said, shadows stretching across her pale face as she stood on the front steps of the house, seeing me out. There was worry in her eyes, and in my own as well. We'd all heard about the killings, and since they'd began, the Lintons were having their meals earlier so that I could make it back home before dark set in. But tonight, it couldn't be helped. They'd had company which arrived later than expected, forcing me to stay in the kitchen, keeping things warm until they got there. I could see them in their fine parlor, having drinks now with their guests as I walked down the street. They'd laugh and clink glasses like them folks do, but Miss Linton's eyes would hold worry for me. My, does that woman know how to worry. I almost laughed at her concern. Thankful for it, yes, but she'd be finding something to worry about on sunny summer days with nothing but the sweet aroma of jasmine in the air. Just as nervous-spirited as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs, that woman is. I shook my head just thinking about it. I clasped my purse in front of me, anticipating a nice cup of joe when I got home to warm me up from this awful cold. Winters in the South could be surprisingly brutal, but Mama would have something warm for me when I got home. She's so good to me like that. Hey, I heard a voice say. I turned toward the alleyway to see who it was and if I was who they were trying to get a hold of, but I couldn't see anything. It was so dark. The shadows of the buildings on either side left a void there. I stood for a moment too long, thinking of monsters, because it wasn't seconds later that one appeared, walking toward me, steady as a hammer with broad shoulders and a black hat that shielded his face. Don't worry. I don't mean you no harm, his voice said, but my gut told me different. Moving quickly down the sidewalk, my short heels clanked on the bricks, but I'd run in the wrong direction, back the way I'd come, back towards the Lintons. Hey, get back here, 
The man yelled, but this time I could make out more of his features. His dark eyes, skin, and coat ran toward me. I moved as quickly as my feet would take me, running up the Linton steps two at a time. I pounded on the door, throwing pretense and manners out the window. Help! I screamed and closed my eyes, fearing he'd make it to me any second, and I was too cowardly to look. Heavens, what's the matter? Miss Linton asked, pulling me inside and slamming the door behind me. She was out of breath. I'd scared her. Her nervous nature too frail to handle it when her fears were actually realized. He's out there, I said, my voice faltering, finding it difficult to breathe after all that running. Who's out there? Mr. Linton appeared in the foyer, pipe hanging from his lips, gray hair amiss on his balding head, like he'd been perfectly comfortable before I'd so rudely interrupted. I'm sorry for barging in, but I tried to say, but had to stop to take another deep breath. He's out there. He tried to get me. Miss Linton pulled her small hand to her face, slender fingers resting on her pink lips. Oh my, Henry. Tell me exactly what happened, Mr. Linton said. I told him how he'd come out of the alleyway and ran after me. Without another word, Mr. Linton disappeared into the adjoining room, coming back without his pipe, but with his coat and a gun. That damned fool is about to meet his maker, Mr. Linton spat. Perhaps we should ring the authorities, Miss Linton said, but she didn't really try to convince him. We both knew they'd get here too late, and I sensed she doubted they'd work too hard to catch him. They sure as hell hadn't yet. There weren't many people in this town as kind as the Lintons. They were as unbiased as they come, sent straight from the good Lord as far as I was concerned. Miss Linton took my hand in hers and pulled me into her room. She held me like my own mother would, as Mr. Linton stepped out into the cold, dark night. I'm so glad you're all right. So many young ladies have been taken by that evil man, she said, her voice low and full of sorrow. That devil will pay. Atlanta began with the railroad. Because of its location near the Chattahoochee River, the railroad extended to the area and became known as the end of the line. The railroad dubbed the vicinity Terminus. In 1843, the city took the name Marthasville, named after Governor Wilson Lumpkin's daughter, Martha Lumpkin Compton. By 1845, the area was officially named Atlanta. Unlike other cities in Georgia during this time, Atlanta's economy was not fueled by plantations and farming. Instead, it was propelled by the railroad industry and mercantilism. Hence, Atlanta never had a large slave population like many other southern cities. Because it was one of the few places in the South that offered jobs and manufacturing, the city quickly grew. In 1860, there were 9,000 people, while in 1865, it had grown to 22,000, all in only five years. Though the Civil War and General Sherman's attack on the city caused some setback, the South's crop of choice, cotton, with the implementation of sharecropping, made its comeback in the late 1800s. This made Atlanta a hub for the textile industry, and by 1900, the population soared to 90,000 people, and the state capital was moved to Atlanta in 1868. Of its 90,000 residents, 35,000 of those were African Americans. 
The civil rights movement came early to Atlanta, thankfully. Well-known historical figures like Alonzo Herndon, founder of the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, and Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, who founded the NAACP, would write themselves in Atlanta's history. And Booker T. Washington's speech, Atlanta Compromise, in 1895, would place the city at the forefront of the civil rights movement. Though there were great strides made for civil rights, there would prove to be much more work to be done in changing the minds of many Atlanta people. Part of this was because as the city grew, so too did the difficulty in obtaining jobs. With both white and African American laborers looking for work, the competition could be intense. Not to mention that there was a growing number of African American upper class. All of this bred contempt in the residents who were of backward thinking. In the 1906 election, candidate Hoke Smith, previous publisher of the Atlanta Journal, and Clark Howell, editor of Atlanta Constitution, proved to be a turning point for relations in Atlanta. Their regressive message further fueled the contempt of some residents and led to a race riot in September of that year. Despite the mayor, James D. Woodward, trying to squelch the uprising, white men attacked African-American men on the streets, invading African-American-owned businesses, and for four days, this rioting continued. The state militia had to move in to help control the chaos. According to Jeffrey Wells, author of The Atlanta Ripper, somewhere between 24 and 40 African-Americans lost their lives, leaving the city ripped apart. All of this is good to keep in mind as we frame the story with a bit of context. Another piece of the puzzle pivotal to understanding the story of the Atlanta Ripper is its relation to the Jack the Ripper case. In 1888, Jack the Ripper began playing the streets of London. Newspapers around the world boomed about the nightmare of the monster loose on the streets. So much was said about Jack the Ripper that he became a household name by the early 1900s. So when women started showing up dead in Atlanta, the term Ripper fit the dreadful fiend who scoured the streets, thirsting for blood. With only about 21 years between the Jack the Ripper killings and the murders in Atlanta, some people wondered if the same man committed them. Not to mention that there were similarities. Victims' throats were often slashed in both cases, for example. But Emma Lou Sharp, a woman who was almost a victim to the Atlanta Ripper, debunked the idea, though. She claimed that the South's Ripper was a tall, thin, African-American man. While evidence for Jack the Ripper supports that he was a white man. Side note, the idea of Jack the Ripper having come to America turned out not to be such a strange and far-fetched idea, because in 1993, it emerged that Dr. Francis Tumblety, a key suspect in the London Ripper killings, did in fact come to America. The term Ripper was widely used after the sensational journalism about London's Ripper had poured through the nation. Many killers of women during that time were labeled Ripper, which speaks volumes to the fear of citizens. If such a monster existed in London, who's to say they didn't exist everywhere? Though the dates are sometimes disputed, the Atlanta Ripper began his work sometime between 1909 and 1911. The first arguable slaying was that of Della Reed on April 5, 1909. She was found in a pile of trash. Another body was found on September 7th that year, 
and by 1910, African American women were being murdered every month. In March, it was Estella Baldwin. In April, it was Georgia Brown. Then Maddie Smith. Then Lavinia Ostin. Then Sarah Dukes. Then Eliza Griggs. And Maggie Brooks. By 1911, things had gotten even worse. As unimaginable as that is. You see, no one had yet been caught for these horrific murders, and people were not only afraid, but outraged that seemingly nothing was being done to find the murderer or murderers. In January, the body of Rosa Trice was found near her home. An article in the Atlanta Constitution described the condition of the body, explaining that her body had been dragged, her head had been bashed in, she had been stabbed, and her throat was slit. Initially, police suspected her husband, John, but after an investigation, no evidence supported that theory, and he was released. Another woman was found in February, who died of a head wound and a slash to the throat. Understandably, people were afraid. Young women were being murdered at an alarming rate, and still, no one knew who was killing them. In May, Rosa Rivers was shot and killed. She was walking with her sister and a friend when a man approached them, pulled out a gun, and fired. Later that month, Mel Walker's body was found near her home. In June, it was Addie Watts. By this time in 1911, the paper started dubbing the murderer the Atlanta Ripper. Then there was Lizzie Watkins. Finally, the media was beginning to take notice and gave the city's nemesis coverage on the front page of the Atlanta Journal. By the time the Ripper had struck again in June, killing Lena Sharp, the papers were keen to get the scoop and he'd left behind a witness that gave them a description of the killer. Lena Sharp left on that evening to visit the market, while her daughter, Emma Lou, stayed home. When her mother didn't return home, she went to look for her. While searching, she came face to face with a murderer. She came across a tall, dark man wearing a black hat. Strangely, the man asked her how she was feeling. Sensing that something wasn't right, and having heard about the killings, she tried to hurry away, only to be stopped by the man who said, Don't be afraid. I never hurt girls like you. He then stabbed her in the back, and then fled. She was able to scream for help and survived. Her mother was not so lucky. A reward of $25 was then offered by a citizen for the capture of the killer. In July, Mary Adele, a cook for the Seltzer household, was walking home when she heard a whistle. She turned to look if someone was trying to get her attention, and that's when she saw a tall, broad-built man. She ran back to the Seltzer home. Upon hearing what happened, Mr. Seltzer went out with a gun to where she'd seen him. He found the man, still there in the alleyway. He told him to put his hands up, but the man ran and got away. Sadie Holly was the next victim. Police soon apprehended a man by the name of Henry Huff. Huff had been seen by witnesses with Sadie Holly the night of the murder. When he was captured, police noted that he was wearing bloody clothes and had scratches on him. He also had a gash wound on his head. Huff claimed that the blood and marks were because of a scuffle at a pool room. A second man was in question too, Todd Henderson. Emma Lou Sharp identified him as the man who had stabbed her and who had likely killed her mother. Only, 
Emma hadn't exactly identified him. Her words when asked if he was the man were, to the best of my knowledge. Not exactly a clear accusation, but when she heard him speak, it was reported that she shrieked, likely reliving that night again, and that cemented any questions she may have had about whether or not he was her attacker. And a clerk placed him near the scene of the murder as well. Another witness said that Henderson had accompanied Miss Sadie Holly to the store the night of her death. Though evidence seemed to be mounting against Henderson, he maintained his innocence. He claimed the reason he'd been seen in these places was because he lived in the area. He even suggested that if he were going to kill someone, it would have been his wife. But many of the murders took place near his home, so that only furthered investigators' suspicions. Another witness, a conductor, also placed Henderson there the night of Sadie Holly's murder. But witnesses had also claimed they'd seen Huff with Holly the night of the crime. One other damning piece of the puzzle surfaced against Henderson. He'd claimed that he didn't own a razor, but police discovered that he'd taken a razor to a barber shop the day after Sadie's murder to get it sharpened. Henderson was eventually arrested for the murder of Sadie Holly, but not for Lena Sharp or the others. But neither Huff or Henderson would ever be convicted. More after this brief promo of one of my favorite podcasts. Do you like to mix creepy with your history? Hi, I'm Diane, host of the History Ghost Bump podcast, a podcast that is basically a ghost tour for the theater of the mind. Featuring the history and hauntings of places that are infamous, and many places you probably have never heard of before. Are these places truly haunted? I leave that up to you to decide. Join me if you dare. Check out historygoesbump.com. The murders continued despite two men being in custody. The police even continued to arrest suspects, and things got even worse. The victims began being mutilated. In the fall, Minnie Wise was found with her finger severed from its middle joint. Then, the worst of all, an unidentified woman was found with her head almost completely detached from her body. Her heart had been removed, and she'd been disemboweled. Eventually, a man by the name of Charles Owens was convicted for one of the Ripper murders and sentenced to life in prison, though the papers did not mention which murder he was convicted of. But still, the killing continued. By August of 1912, police arrested Henry Brown for the murder of Ava Lawrence. His wife claimed that he'd frequently come home on the weekends with his clothes covered in blood. He'd even reportedly told police details about some of the murders, but a man came forward and testified that the police had beaten a confession out of Brown, to which he was then acquitted. In March of 1914, the killer or killers began playing with the authorities. Notes pinned to fireboxes began appearing around the city. The author threatened to, quote, cut the throats of all Negro women who were out late at night. 
These notes were signed, Jack the Ripper. Whoever the killer or killers were, there were some consistencies. The way the women were murdered, usually clubbed in the head and throat sliced. Also, many of the victims' shoes were removed and taken. Another oddly consistent thing is that many of the killings were done on Saturday nights. With at least 20 murders attributed to the Atlanta Ripper, the Ripper left a brutal scar in Atlanta's history. It's believed that he had committed his last murder in 1914 with Mary Holland, but some believe that the killings may have gone on until 1924. Despite many arrests and eyewitness accounts, the Atlanta Ripper was never named or found. It's unknown if these brutal attacks were made by one singular murderer or a series of copycat murderers. Because the South was plagued with segregation and racism at the time, the victims of the Atlanta Ripper never got the attention and reverence they deserved. While the murders were taking place, the media was also covering a string of robberies happening in affluent white neighborhoods. Police were likely overwhelmed with crime and a lack of both resources and science to help aid in their investigations. For over 100 years, the vicious murders of these young women have gone unsolved. It remains a heartbreaking reminder of the South's dark history. One can only take solace in knowing that no evil ever goes unpunished. Last week I announced a new addition to the Fabled Collection. The Fabled Journal is a history and literary online publication which shares more stories like the ones you enjoy from the podcast, written by various authors. Our first story is from Janae Mitchell. She tells a hauntingly true story that reminds us that monsters do exist. Here's a brief excerpt. The drive to the secluded cabin was even more foreboding than the stories that brought us there. Dilapidated barns and abandoned houses with broken-out windows lined the curvy gravel road that left a cloud of dust in our wake. It was like driving through a backwoods ghost town. I didn't want to go on this investigation, since cabins in the woods are usually the go-to locations for horror movies. However, when my son Zach heard where my team was going deep in the Appalachian woods, he begged me to go. So there I was, driving in the middle of nowhere to investigate ghost stories and Bigfoot sightings. Of course, we couldn't drive all the way to the cabin, since it truly was in the middle of the woods. So we had to walk the last couple of hundred yards. As the cabin came into view, nestled in the center of a small clearing, the first thing I thought was how cute and quaint it looked. That feeling quickly changed as we got closer. Despite the sunlight that danced through the trees, the air felt heavy. You can find the full story at fablecollective.com or watch it on YouTube by searching Fable Collective. If you'd like to support the content I'm creating, please consider becoming a patron. Every little bit helps pay for the equipment, subscriptions, and time it takes to produce the podcast, books, audiobooks, and journal. Your support and encouragement is so sincerely appreciated. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>